Listeners, glad to meet with you again. We will now begin Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. I hope all of our listeners spent time in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, remembering the eternal life He has promised us since we last spoke. Often people admire landscapes and state that they are a masterpiece. There are so many beautiful landscapes across the world, but I recently thought these beautiful scenes before us—they are actually God's masterpieces. In the beginning, when God created the world, He saw, He said that it was good. But I wonder, this land that we see now—is this the land that God created when He said that what He saw was good? I don't think so. Because that land was cursed by a flood during Noah's time, it says in Genesis chapter eight, verse twenty through twenty-two. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said it in his heart, "Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood." And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. According to this passage in Genesis, it tells us the ground will be cursed. It tells us as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. According to the scholars, before the flood. There was no cold and heat in summer and winter, meaning it was the perfect circumstances to live in. That is why this is not the land that God created when He says that what He saw was good. We'll come back to share more after our first song. You show your majesty in every star that shines, and every time we breathe, your glory, God, revealed from distant galaxies to heal beneath our skin. You are higher than we ever could. And closer than our eyes could ever see. You are magnificent. You alone are holy. No one else is glorious as you. Magnificent. Magnificent. 
closer than our eyes could ever see We are pouring out our hearts here in your presence We are living on the grounds that God cursed with a great flood during the time of Noah. However, it says in Revelation by Apostle John that one day this land we are living in will be gone along with Satan and all non-believers. It reads in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Do you know who will hold all power and glory in this land once Jesus comes back? The devil says in Luke chapter 4 verse 6, And he said to him, It has been given to me. That's right. The power and glory is in the hands of Satan for a short time. Apostle Paul uses the expression, The ruler of the kingdom of the air, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. In other words, meaning the devil has control over the world. You may be wondering where I'm going with this. Here is the message I'm trying to relay. This land that we live in has been cursed and will one day be gone, meaning there is no reason for us to store our hope in this place. Furthermore, the devil temporarily has permission to rule over this land. We, the children of God, called by the blood of Christ, do not belong to this world. Our hope and wants are not of this world but in heaven. The ultimate ruler of that place in this land is the triune God. Do you know what will happen the day Jesus Christ comes back? Everyone who died within Christ will come back alive, and the bodies that died because of our fallen sinful state will be restored into new bodies. This land that was cursed will also be restored, and the temporary controller of this land, the devil, will be trapped. Until then, the controller of this land is the devil. But do you think that the devil who is the ruler of this land will easily let God's kingdom come? Or that he will leave alone the children of God to allow God's will? 
Will Satan actually lessen the fatal attacks he brings down upon his world to allow the conquering one and only God to return? Revelation chapter 2 verse 18 through 29 relays what Jesus tells the church of Thyatira. This church had love, faith, was a serving church, and had patience. But it approved of Jezebel within the church. Jezebel was a wife of King Ahab who first appears in 1 Kings chapter 16, who committed spiritual adultery by building altars for Baal and Asherah. It says in Revelation chapter 2 verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Here in this verse, the term misleads means to deceive or to dazzle. In other words, meaning to stray away from the limit. In a simpler explanation, Jezebel came to teach the false things to the children of God, making them commit spiritual adultery and encouraging them to eat and live off worldly foods. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this Tyatira church existed from 8600 to 801517, representing the Dark Ages. At that time, the church was misled by the Roman Catholics committing spiritual adultery being compromised by the ways of the world which led it into the Dark Ages. And from then on, they created many false religious doctrines that salvation can be earned by righteous deeds and actions rather than faith, that salvation can be received by receiving baptism, worshiping other idols, worshiping the theory of purgatory and the Virgin Mary, and distinguishing non-existent clergies creating into a group of celibates. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The history of Christianity is a history of persecution because the people were not of the world. But during the Middle Ages, there was a period of time when it was the Christians who persecuted the world. In fact, Christians killed people for not believing in Christ during this time when they had power. My foes are many They rise against me But I will hold my ground I will not fear the war I will not fear the storm My help is on the way My help is on the way
Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Cure for the Consequences of Sin, Part 1, based on 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Mark Martin. A while ago, I read about a trio of streakers who dashed into a Denny's restaurant one chilly night. They only wore shoes and hats. And they noticed、uh, a diner exit, and so they、uh, dove out of the restaurant, driving off in their car, which they'd left running to make a quick getaway with their clothes inside. And they left their clothes on the outside, and they Had to get away naked. You think sometimes you can get away with something, and there's always that hitch, isn't there? It's like, oh, my clothes. 
But a lot of times we forget other kinds of consequences. And in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, God has given us the cure for the consequences of sin. In 1 John 1, verse 8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We won't ever be sinless. I think we've already seen that as we've studied 1 John, right? Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. When we're in the presence of the Lord, finally we're going to be out of the presence of sin. But not until then, unfortunately. We're still going to be sinning. And uh, not because we, we really want to, but because we're living in this sinful world and we, we talked about having this nature, uh, this, uh, the flesh, not the nature, but the flesh, this change of nature and the flesh in us kind of inclines towards sin and, and as a result, we're just struggling. And that's why one reason why I'm, t- I'm surely looking forward to heaven. As believers, we're never gonna be sinless, but we're gonna sin less and less. Just remember, that's our heart and that's the heart of a believer in Christ. Verse 9 reads, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confessing our sins is actually the opposite of denying them when you think about it. He's saying, don't say you don't have any sin. And you remember the old gentleman that I told you about a few weeks ago who thought he was sinless. Just talked to his wife, right? Nobody's going to be without sin. Confessing our sin is the opposite of denying it. Confessing our sin is admitting, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. Those are hard words for some people to say. If we deny our sin, three things happen. Verse 8 says we deceive ourselves. Verse 10 says we make God a liar. And verses 8 and 10 say God's word is not in us. So this is serious business not being willing to confess sin, not being willing to admit sin is making God a liar. It's saying that uh, we're deceiving ourselves and that God's word isn't even really in us. If we confess our sins, the word confess means to say the same as. It actually means in Greek to agree with or it could mean to concede. All right, you're right. You're right. To admit and it's, it's a word that came to mean in court that, that you admit a wrong. I'm, I'm wrong. I confess. I did the crime. The Greek word is homologeo, which actually means to say the same as. Just to say the very same. God, I agree. You say this is wrong? I admit this is wrong. God, you say this is right? That's following the truth? I, I say that's right. I follow your way. It actually says if we continue to confess our sins or can keep on confessing our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some Christians in the past years have taught that we don't have to f- ask God for forgiveness of our sins because 
we're already saved. And this verse is talking about getting saved. And because Jesus has forgiven our sins, we don't have to ask God for any kind of forgiveness. And this was really popular a few years ago. And churches would split over this. It seems like churches are always looking for a reason to divide. You know? Instead of, Jesus said, think of all the reasons you have to what? Stay together. Amen? Right? I mean, that's what the Lord's after. Is it true that we're already forgiven? Yes. Look at 1 John 2, verse 12. 1 John 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, little children. The term are, the words are forgiven are actually in a tense in the Greek that says your sins have already been forgiven. It's done. Sins are all forgiven, past, present, and future. The Lord has forgiven them. In fact, because it's in the perfect tense here, it actually could be translated, your sins are forever forgiven, perfectly forgiven for his namesake. And I'm going, yeah. That is so cool, isn't it? I love that. But then what about 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, if we actually keep on confessing our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is this? One place says that my sins have been forgiven permanently for his name's sake. This other place is saying, right before, if I continue to confess my sins, he will cleanse me. What is this? Is this a contradiction? Is it true that my sins have been forgiven? Yes. Is it true, verse 9, that I am to continue to confess my sins? Yes. Both are true. Both are true. And you don't have to go to sides and say, well, I don't believe in that camp that believes in confessing their sins. Well, I don't believe in that camp that doesn't believe in confessing their sins. The Bible teaches both for a believer. Let me just, first of all, look at verse 9. It's not talking the we in verse 9. If we confess our sins, it's not talking about we unbelievers, right? It's talking about us believers. If we believers confess our sins, the whole book in chapter 5, verse 13 is written for believers. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Those are believers, right? In order that you may know you have eternal life. This is written to the children of God. My little children, my little children. Uh, I'm writing to you who believe. You know, the whole book is written to believers. It's a test of faith for believers. So when he's saying if we confess our sins, he is talking about believers. Another thought I had on that is if he's talking to unbelievers, I didn't know confessing my sins was the way I got saved. Did you? Because confession is a good work. Confession is something I do. It's not by grace through faith. So then it would be salvation by confession. And we're not saved by confessing our sins because you'd never be done, would you? I never would. I was raised in a religion that believed that we had to confess every sin before God, and if you didn't remember your sin to confess it, it was written down in a book of remembrance in heaven against you. Even if you confess the sin, you could remember all your sins at the end of the day and confess them. It was still written down and it would be marked against you if you didn't perfectly overcome it. 
There was no motivation in that except the motivation of fear, the motivation of keeping somebody you know, under law. So this isn't talking about salvation by confession. Amen? This isn't talking about unbelievers getting saved. This is written to us who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's saying we need to confess our sins and keep on confessing our sins and receive the forgiveness of Jesus. And we need to be reminded, chapter 2, verse 12, that we have been forgiven once and forever through Jesus Christ. What is this great truth all about? Well, the Old Testament has a picture of it. It's pretty cool. In the Old Testament, the priests were set apart to serve the Lord. They would go to the altar of sacrifice, and there at the altar of sacrifice, the blood would be applied to them. Their sins would be forgiven. That's what Jesus represents, the sacrifice of God, the Lamb of God, right, that takes away the sin of the world. Then there would be, then, so they were, they were now set apart for God. They belonged to God, and that's a picture of our justification by faith. I love that term justification, to be justified. God acquits us of all our sin. We are not guilty anymore. In fact, when you're acquitted in a court, there is no record of any wrong. There's no record of any charges. It's dropped. Charges are what, they say? Dropped. It's all gone. And so you're acquitted. When I'm justified, God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified, declared righteous. I'm not righteous in and of myself, but the righteousness is all in Jesus Christ, and his righteousness, his righteousness is credited to us. Imputed is the legal term for that. It's imputed to us, reckoned to our account, credited to our account. That's what saves us. It's Jesus' blood and righteousness. The priests were set apart to God by the blood of the sacrifice. But then as they served the Lord according to the Old Testament law, they were to move ahead and every time they stepped into the holy place, the temple where they uh, served the Lord was divided into two rooms, the most holy place, the innermost room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept with the Ten Commandments in it and, and other relics from Israel's holy history to remind them of God's saving power and God's promises to them and their promise to God. And then there was a holy place, and out there there were different, uh, there was a table with bread on it, the bread of the presence of God, seven-branch candlestick out there, and so an altar of incense. And then outside, just before you go into that room, there was a great big basin that they were to wash their feet in before they stepped in. If they didn't wash their feet, they would be killed. Because God was teaching through the Old Testament laws, New Testament important truths. He's saying, fellowship with me is based upon keeping your walk clean. See, that's what the feet was all about. The priests were to serve the Lord barefooted. They were to serve the Lord with their feet clean so that they could feel, or bear so that they could feel any little thing. You know, I take off my shoe and now I can feel what I couldn't feel before. I couldn't feel the little crack on the step here. I couldn't feel that kind of stuff. But I can feel it when I have my shoe off. I'm more sensitive. You go walk in the gravel and it's, ooh, ooh, ow, ooh, ooh. you know, you feel anything in the way, anything that needs to be moved out. 
And so it is in our service with the Lord. He's saying, look, I want you to be sensitive in following me. And if your feet get dirty in serving me, you don't have to go back to the altar. You don't have to get another sacrifice. You don't have to be saved all over again. You just need to get your feet washed. And then come in and fellowship and serve me. But don't, don't even try to come in and serve me with dirty feet. I want a clean walk. That's what the Lord says. Jesus, in John chapter 13, remember, go back to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus had gathered the disciples into the upper room and he said to them, now, I want you to let me wash your feet. And he started washing the feet, the job that one of them should have done because when Jesus set up the whole arrangement for the upper room for the Passover just before he was arrested, he purposefully omitted a servant that night to wash people's feet. That was usually a servant's job and not, you know, uh, one of the guest's responsibilities. In the Jewish mind, the foot was the dirtiest part of the body. And Jesus was waiting for somebody. I mean, somebody should have washed their feet when they came in. I mean, it's just what happened. It was like taking someone's coat. You always would wash someone's feet when they came into your house. The disciples look around and went, I'm not doing that. Are you? I'm not doing that. Who's supposed to be doing this? Not me, not me. And so Jesus, he gets down and he starts washing his disciples' feet. And by the time he got to Peter, Peter was incredulous. And Peter said, look, you are not going to wash my feet. And, and you can just see him kind of pulling his feet away from the Lord. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you're not going to have any part with me. And the word is meros in Greek, which means fellowship. Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you're not going to have any fellowship with me. See, and then Peter says, well, then, Lord, if that's so, then, then wash my head and my, wash, give me a bath. He had already said in John 15, you're already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. And he says here in John 13, verse 10, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Speaking of Judas, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus says, all I need to do is wash your feet and you're going to be clean, perfectly clean. Now, he's telling us the truth of 1 John chapter 1. He's saying, look, if we continue to confess our sins, then he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not the cleansing of salvation, of justification. This is the cleansing of fellowship. This is our daily walk with Jesus. And the Lord's saying, hey, if you flub up, then immediately come to me and let me clean your walk. See, I'm promising you, gang, serving Jesus, you are going to get your feet dirty. You can determine, I'm not going to step in a puddle. I'm not going to step in a cow pie. I'm not going to, you know, whatever it might be. But you are going to get your feet dirty. The tendency is to always think, well, somebody else may, but not me. I remember going on long walks with my, my good friend, Randy, who now lives up in Montana. He was an elder at our church here for years. He's still my long-distance elder. And uh, he, uh, he and I would walk through the park every morning. We'd walk around and around and around this little park. 
And one morning when we got back to my house, I thought, oh, what's that awful smell? And I looked at him, you know, I didn't say anything right away because I thought, oh, Randy. I immediately thought it was him. And, and I kind of moved away from him and he followed me. And I moved onto my lawn, my house, and, and he followed me. I thought, oh, everywhere I go, Randy, just, you know. And then I was standing there and kind of looking down at my tennis shoe and I realized that I'm the one who stepped in something. It was me and not my brother. It was me. I'm the one who stank. Just admit it. Otherwise, you're not coming in the house. Take off the shoes because you're not bringing that in my house. Is it because the Lord doesn't love us? No. Is it because the Lord, we have to go get resaved? No. God's saying, let me wash your feet. Let's get this off of here so that we can go on with more important things. There's no sin that the Lord will not forgive. There's no sin that we can't come to Jesus with and say, Lord, I messed up. Lord, I stepped in this mud and, and it is, anybody ever go to Kauai? Anybody go to Kauai? Okay, you know the dirt there? They say, look, wear your old tennis shoes because if you bring your new tourist pair there, they're ruined. You'll never get that red mud color out of your shoes or your clothes. In fact, they even dye shirts, t-shirts in the mud, in the dirt, in the sand because it's, it's red and it dyes things. Come to Jesus with the worst of stains and he can cleanse those stains. The cleansing of justification. I'm writing to you, your sins have been forever permanently forgiven for Jesus' namesake and by his blood. If we confess our sins, if we continue to confess our sins, then he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all our sins. He's gonna wash our feet. That's what it's talking about there in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It's not talking about how to get saved. It's talking about how to experience fellowship with God. You understand? It's the fellowship of salvation. It's Jesus doing the John 13, washing my feet, and I need it every day, many times a day. Lord, that thought, oh, I'm sorry. Lord, that attitude, wash my feet. Lord, oh. Lord, remembering that, oh, I'm sorry. Lord, I want to do more. Whatever it might be, just wash my feet. And it's not this big, oh, you know, I got to go running away from the Lord. It's not I have to be resaved. I just come to the Lord. And he gently, carefully, it was gentle. And that's the way the Lord is with you. He doesn't want to take your heart and hurt it. He doesn't want to wash it. Satisfy me with your love and 
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. Many of us that grew up in the U.S. most likely understand that the foundation of the United States of America was greatly influenced by Puritanism. Therefore, we can easily find the existence of Christian beliefs throughout the history of the United States. Up until the 1950s, you can find the Ten Commandments proudly displayed on the walls of courts, schools, and many other public institutions across the country. In the 1960s, however, many changes began to take place. On a positive note, racial equality and human rights began to be emphasized. While this human rights movement was widely taking place, the role of Christianity began to diminish in our society. Many evangelists today blame the 1960s for the removing of the Ten Commandments from public facilities and government agencies, eventually driving God away from the public. The majority of Americans appear to be okay with religious events in the public unless the religious idea is enforced upon them. However, politically and socially influential people believe that the state and church must be separated. They are against the idea of showing a religion-specific symbol in the court's public schools and other public facilities. Today, we'll talk about the law and the Ten Commandments that has disappeared from public institutions in our nation. The Ten Commandments first appeared in the Bible in Exodus chapter 20. I'm pretty sure that all of you have heard of the Ten Commandments, even if you can't memorize all ten. The Ten Commandments are the basic guidelines and the laws for the relationship between God and Israel, God and people, and among ourselves. Many other religions also support most of the contents in the Ten Commandments. C.S. Lewis, a Christian scholar, stated that the Ten Commandments had been accommodated in various forms throughout the history of humanity and major civilizations. As C.S. Lewis asserts, it is true that the ethical laws similar to the Ten Commandments can be found in almost every social framework that had existed in human history. This does not mean, however, that all people agree with the laws similar to the Ten Commandments. The law also triggers heated discussions among Christians. Is the law abolished, or does it still apply? Which law is abolished and which law is still in effect? Which law was revised when Jesus came to the earth? These questions caused so many debates and even created factions within Christianity. In the Old Testament, there are around 20 sins that led to death. These sins include murder, sorcery, homosexuality, blasphemy, adultery, treason, and others. In the majority of today's world, however, only the crime of murder still warrants the death penalty. 
In the Old Testament, there are also some laws that don't seem to apply to the modern world, such as not eating pork, not touching a corpse or a dead body, or not laboring on the Sabbath. Does this mean that we decide ourselves what to keep and what to abandon? No. Christians should not judge the Bible according to what makes sense to them and what doesn't. This also does not mean that we must keep all the laws in the Bible as God's command for us. In fact, today's Christians do not need to do so. The law of the Old Testament was God's law for certain people who lived in a certain time period. Christian doctrine teaches us that Jesus, the Redeemer of our sins, fulfilled the law of Moses by his death and resurrection. Jesus Christ taught us a better way to live, and this was not about keeping God's law to the letter. We will discuss this further during our next episode. The law of the Old Testament contains complicated rules and ceremonies that God assigned for the Jews before the actual Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to earth. Many rules and ceremonies were needed for purification, and some were performed to symbolize God. The purpose and rituals of the temple were fulfilled when Jesus Christ died on the cross. We no longer have to go to the temple and offer sacrifices. We do not even need to go to the temple to meet God. Our body has become the church where God resides. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Today, the place where we gather to worship and praise God is not the temple. However, as the Bible states, each and every member of the church is God's temple, so we can say that gathering of believers is God's temple. We can divide the law of Old Testament into three categories, civil laws, ritual laws, and moral laws. Among the three, moral laws are absolute and unchangeable. For example, when we look at the laws such as homosexuals must be stoned and thieves must pay back seven times, the idea of such moral standards still exists, but the method of punishment is no longer practiced. Also, as we've discussed earlier, ritual laws such as offerings and purification were fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Therefore, the moral law stating that we must all be holy remain true, yet the rituals are no longer needed. Lastly, the moral laws including do not be a false witness against your neighbor, do not steal, do not murder, and do not commit adultery are still valid because they are based upon the absolute standard the nature of God. I find it both ironic and also interesting that people who have never read the Bible and who do not know God still feel guilty when they break these moral laws. The Ten Commandments that we've discussed today are like the summary of God's moral laws. Jesus repeated all nine laws in the New Testament except for the Fourth Commandment, remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. Yet, the essence of the fourth commandment is still valid. We must keep our time holy for God. Does any of you spend your time working on something else during the service? I would want to believe that all of us keep the time set apart and holy for worship service. None of you would spend the time for your own entertainment or satisfaction during worship services. There is one important thing to keep in mind. It is easy to misunderstand that among the three categories of the law, only one of them remains to be binding. But this is not true. In fact, there is only one set of laws in the Bible, 
Biblical scholars categorize the laws into three types in order to make it easier for them to comprehend. The system of the law was abolished as Jesus Christ completed the law itself through his life, death, and resurrection. Yet the system of the law is based on the absolute principles of God, and therefore it transcends the existing moral, theological, and political systems in the world. The Bible also testifies that the moral law that reflects God's unchanging nature is inscribed on the heart of every person on earth. It is written in Romans chapter 2, verses 12-15, through 15, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the laws will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Christians become justified not by observing the law. We observe the spirit of the law because Christians already became righteous. This concludes this week's episode of Christian Ethics. Thank you for listening and God bless.
As I mentioned earlier, would Satan have tolerated Christians doing anything that threatened him or gave them real power? There may be some people who may think that it wasn't the devil, but God who gave Christians power during that time. But when power is from God, we only bear good fruits. As Jesus spoke through the words of John chapter 15, if we are within Jesus and Jesus within us, we will bear much fruit. It also says in Matthew chapter 7, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Because of all the bad fruit, historians claim that the church then was in the dark ages. The church is growing in this land that is ruled by Satan and that has been cursed. Is it growing in power because the world is becoming a better place to live in? Or because human rights are becoming more protected? Is that why people are building these great big churches so that it can influence and use its power in society? But a frightening thought is, why isn't it the opposite? Perhaps all this is happening because the churches and Christians today are not even the slightest threat to the devil's schemes and he is happy to leave them alone? Or maybe it is better for Satan to just leave everything as it is. As a Christian, what kind of suffering am I going through because I am an alien to this world? Are there any interferences from this world keeping me from holding on to my faith? Have you ever had this thought? If we don't have any sufferings or interferences and are living a smooth and peaceful life, Maybe we should look back and reflect upon our faith. As we wrap up, I would like to share with you the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, which says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? I truly hope that all of our listeners will stay within the presence of the Lord remaining faithful to the eternal life He has promised us. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week, and God bless.